Hello, welcome to FiresideFileMaker.com, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Rashad. Hello, I'm Michael Rashad, Fireside FileMaker. And my name is John Mark Osborne, and we have a special guest today, Nick Lightbody. And I believe I met Nick, and he had to remind me about this, uh, but at DevCon, and he'll talk about it. I think he has a little bit of a story, but I, I have a terrible memory, and I apologize. Uh, but since Michael suggested Nick as a guest, I went to do some research. And what I found out astounded me from his previous careers to his presentations, his white papers, all kinds of stuff. Nick is a fascinating FileMaker developer who has dramatically impacted the market. Well, that, that that's that's very uh, very kind of you. I, I, as a typical Brit, I'm sure that in a very self-deprecating manner, I'd have to say I couldn't possibly deserve any of those compliments. But thank you. Um, yeah, it's been a, an interesting time with FileMaker. Um, I'm based in the UK in Cambridge, and I first used FileMaker in 1997, and um, I sort of was starting a new firm, creating a new law office, and um, a friend introduced me to FileMaker as a way of managing my data. And uh, as is, I think, often the way with these things, that the accessibility, the enablingness of FileMaker um, resulted in me spending a lot of time building stuff with it to solve problems to satisfy what I needed. And then, of course, the next step was I ended up selling it to other people. Is that, uh, Nick, is that why you decided to, to retire from uh, the law? Or I'm just curious if, if you can say anything about it, because it seems like you started off and then built FileMaker, and then FileMaker lured you away. <laughs> well, it, I'll tell you why. The, the reason was that the regulation of lawyers in the United Kingdom um, took a slight change in direction uh, at that time in 1999, in that the, um, uh, you know that all lawyers have to have professional indemnity insurance. And until that time, in England and Wales, the professional indemnity insurance system for lawyers, for solicitors, and I was a solicitor because in the UK, a, a practicing lawyer who has an office and meets clients is called a solicitor, unlike the use of the term in the United States, which has a somewhat different meaning. So as, as, a, as, a, as a lawyer, the system was um, taken into the open market. So instead of the professional association providing all the PI cover for all of England and Wales' solicitors, it went into the market. And it was a good time I decided to retire because if I retired at that point, I got free runoff cover. And if I didn't retire at that point, I'd have to spend a lot of money on six years runoff cover at some later date. So I retired, went back into law a bit later on. But in the meantime, um, we were facing the uh, 2K uh, market. And for various reasons, I raised investment for a number of different people to um, commercialize the desk space software that I've been building for my law office. And um, so I sort of took the opportunity for a change. And also I did find, although I'd enjoyed my time in the law, I did find that being a lawyer, I felt was not an entirely positive thing. Uh, lawyers tend to uh, benefit from other people's problems. And I was keen to spend a bit of my time trying to make the world a slightly better place. And I thought that writing good software um, that enabled people to organize their businesses without getting RSI was probably quite a good thing. 
Well, and of course, Nick, there aren't many jokes about pharmacy developers that are lawyers. The, 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 best, the best one about lawyers that I can remember was the one where um, the um, very successful commercial lawyer or attorney, as they would be in the United States, rocks up at the pearly gates and St. Peter's there with his clipboard. And the lawyer's saying to St. Peter, no, no, there must be some mistake. You know, it isn't my time. You know, really, I'm, 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 I'm in my early 50s. I'm in my prime. And St. Peter looks at his clipboard and says, I'm very sorry, sir, but according to your timesheets, <laughs> you're 85. <laughs> what is the difference between a tragedy and a catastrophe? A tragedy is when a ship full of lawyers sinks, and a catastrophe is when they can all swim. <laughs> That's a good one, too. <laughs> so, Nick, do you remember how we first met? How and where? Yeah, um, 2016, um, I, I, go, I don't go to every DevCon. I, I go to them every, every several years when it seems like a good reason to do so. And I was uh, invited to go and do a, um, a, a sort of a video interview with, I try, gosh, what is his name? You, Michael, you'll remember his name. I, Clark. That's right, Don Clark, great guy. I didn't know him very well, but he invited me to come and talk about some stuff I've been doing. Um, this is really on the heels of um, my initial uh, white paper on Farmaker server performance and on presenting at that DevCon. So I made my way to his room somewhere in the upper regions of some hotel in Vegas. And there asleep on the couch, maybe there's a there's a thing there, Michael, there you were asleep on the couch. So I think um, uh, there was one or two other people there as well. And we did this sort of interview chat with a couple of cameras on tripods and microphones, and all this sort of interesting stuff. And later on, you, you sort of... Um, rose from your couch and um, we, we started talking and it was very interesting indeed. I can neither confirm nor deny that I was asleep on the couch, but it's quite probable. <laughs> if I remember correctly, we started talking about Bruce Robertson and I can't remember how that came about. Um, you obviously know him very well and I had worked with him on a couple of small projects. He's a brilliant guy, very nice guy. And I think that's where we started talking. Is that right? Oh, indeed. And we, we have the same sense of humour and so on. But Bruce is a great guy. I mean, I was really, really fortunate. I there was um, there was a time a few years back where there was some move within FileMaker Engineering to make a fundamental change to relationships. And I think what it was, I think what they were going to do was say that you couldn't have a relationship between something with no records in it and something which had records, which effectively was going to basically stop an awful lot of user interfaces working, at least the way that I did it was going to stop it working anyway. And um, I, I'm trying to think. I know I put out a sort of request for help on, um, on, on one of the uh, FileMaker lists, and I got... Um, two responses, two, two, two offers of help. One was from Bruce, and the other was from a um, very nice guy, um, Kevin, who's just a bit south of Bruce. Bruce is up in Redmond near Seattle, and um, Kevin has got this really great website with lots. You're talking about Kevin Frank, FileMaker Hack. That's right, exactly. 
and he 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 came in with some um, ideas as well. And one thing led to another. And when Bruce was coming to the UK um, a little while later, um, I offered to meet him at the airport and put him up for a few days. And we got to know each other. And he's a really fascinating guy, a real engineer. And uh, then when I was in the States in 2011 and 12, I, I stayed with him a couple of times up at Redmond and um, learned a great deal from him. So he's, um, you know, he, he has a very, very high place in my estimation. He's a very, very clever guy and a very, very kind guy. He's but he's also a very direct bloke, and and he's probably um, probably well known for being able to say things in three words that other people take twenty five to do. Uh, I rather like somebody who's straightforward, so that works for me. But I, I'm the guy here who's going to be listening to this conversation between two guys who know each other. But I'm going to translate some of the stuff, or I'm going to ask you to translate some of the stuff you say because there's a lot of audience members in the United States. And the first thing I heard you say that I don't understand and I want to know, and it was about five minutes ago, you said run off cover. I don't know what that is. So I'm just trying to make sure everybody follows you what you're saying. Yes. Okay. When under, under English law, and I'm sure that um, American law is pretty similar because it all has a common basis. The so-called common law is, is the, the sort of legal uh, foundations of both um, United States and English law, um, you have a contractual liability um, that runs for a minimum of six years under things that are agreed by contract. And so that means in the UK, as a solicitor, um, you have to maintain your files and you retain your liability for six years after you cease practice. So it means that your client can sue you within that period. And that's what runoff cover is designed to, to cover, that if you decide to, or whenever you retire, decide to retire, um, it then ensures you for the sort of runoff liability period. Okay. I, I thought it was a British term I didn't know for sure, so I wanted to ask. John, just don't feel bad because I didn't know what that meant either. You'll appreciate this story, Nick. Many years ago, uh, when I was married to my first wife, Alison, we were in the UK, and I was taking my mother somewhere to visit some old friends. And she's in the passenger seat, and I'm driving, and Alison's sitting in the back, and Mum and I are just chatting as normal. And we got to our destination, and Alison said, I didn't understand one word of that entire conversation. Uh, that's the difference between English and American. Well, yeah, it, it's it's funny, isn't it? Because we speak exactly the same language, but there is there are some cultural differences and some differences in expectation, aren't there, which have always been there. Um, I've got a really interesting little book I picked up in a bookshop several years ago, which was um, the, uh, the official, um, I think it was the official, was it either the American Guide to for U.S. Uh, personnel coming to Britain during the Second World War, or may have been maybe it's a British guide explaining how to deal with with U.S. personnel coming to Britain, and it was a short little small book explaining about all the special differences in culture and 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 how one should treat um, our, our friends coming to visit in very large numbers to to fight with us uh, against the uh, the Nazis and so on and. Um, uh, you know those differences are there, and and it's because if you think about it in software development terms, there was a fork in development, wasn't there, a, a couple of hundred years ago or more, 
And, um, you know, so you've got two different code sets with a common root. Well, I've taught uh, quite a few classes in the United Kingdom and uh, also some in Australia. And I found both cultures to be extremely uh, uh, welcoming. I mean, literally every night they'd say, let's go have a beer, you know, let's go out and have a beer. I'm like, well, I, I got to wake up tomorrow and teach a class. Um, but, you know, I found that uh, the cultural differences weren't that big of a deal for me. It was more of just the the sayings, you know, things like that, that I had trouble. Like, I don't know what, what's a boot. I don't know what that is. <laughs> so <laughs> a trunk. Yeah. Yeah. No. So you, you, you put you, we have a trunk, we have a boot in the back of the car. You have a trunk and we put a trunk on an elephant. It's very, um, it, it, it's but it, you know, it is, I mean, if you take the, take the software development metaphor, it, it's, um, it's actually very appropriate, isn't it? Because you have terms, which, in fact, end up being defined variables and what have you that end up being defined differently as 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 a, a, a software project branches and things are developed according to different needs, and that's exactly what's happened to our our language. So, as Michael said before, we'll try to get back to to FileMaker here. Can you tell us a little bit if your yachting or legal background? has helped you in any way? I mean, I might just be barking up the wrong tree here. Maybe it hasn't, but it seems to me that influence may have made its way somewhere into your FileMaker career. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting thought, actually. Um, and I think I think it probably has. I, I spent... Um, I grew up in the in the 70s. I was at university, um, University of Sussex in the, in the mid-70s. So obviously, it puts me into into the senior the senior ranks nowadays of filmmaker developers, and uh, I'm in that group of people uh, who were born in the mid '50s, basically, and who um, uh, who were at school at the time when slide rules were just stopping and calculators were just arriving, and there are lots of interesting things where the cusp of change was exactly there as, as I was sort of um, growing older and learning stuff. And when I grew up, you didn't think about how to earn a living. You thought about how to have fun after you'd left school and you went to university and had a great time at university. And then I thought, what do I do next? I thought, well, I'm going to go sailing because I enjoy sailing. And so I went off and um, uh, spent a few months learning to be a boat builder and built a boat at the end of that to race in and then I joined a sailmaker and learned how to make sails and sailed in lots of different classes and had a lot of time and then decided after about seven years I needed to get a real job because you can sail to a very high level if you're basically in the trade because you get everything for nothing or very cheaply and you, you go all around the world competing in various events and having a great time but you don't actually make much money doing it at least you didn't in those days so I thought I'd become a lawyer because some of the best customers I had were lawyers, um, barristers or solicitors, uh, the two branches of the legal profession in England. And um, so I went off and got a place at college and did my training for a couple of years and then became a trainee solicitor. So after four years, I changed from being a sailmaker into being um, a commercial lawyer and um, then went through a sort of a you know, a new stage of evolution. And I then, of course, got my law firm sailing. And uh, uh, we, we had a lot of fun getting people out in boats and teaching them stuff they didn't know. And um, the things that I suppose I've applied 
to software would be that from the sailing side, performance is everything. You look like a great sailor with great tactics if you're in a fast boat. You've only got to uh, uh, look at YouTube, look at the America's Cup currently happening in Auckland in New Zealand where you've got four AC-75s or three AC-75 challengers challenging each other to um, uh, challenge the holder, the New Zealand guys, um, a little bit later in March and see these 75-foot boats being flown across the Auckland Sound at up to speeds of 50 nautical miles an hour to understand that performance is everything because the moment those things slow down, they look really very poor but if they're fast they're good so speed and performance is has always been very important to me and I think also the rigor of doing law was a useful one because um, one of the old tactics in legal life was if you had a difficult agreement to reach some important negotiation you'd normally schedule the meeting to start at about five o'clock on a Friday and then it was a question of attrition you you basically you stayed up all night and all the next day and you basically waited to see who was going to wilt first um and um that's quite a good um background for developing software because the ability to get onto something and focus really hard on it and work through the night and the next day as well and whatever is you know quite a useful ability um I don't know any software developers who sort of knock off at five o'clock, certainly. So uh, it, I think uh, you mentioned to us that you had uh, done a three-day class with Ray Culligan. Um, Ray's one of my heroes. I, I, I assume you uh, enjoyed the class. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Because we'd like to get Ray on the show. Uh, it would be nice to interview him as well. Absolutely. I think um, Ray is the top of my my list of people that I've been impressed by in the FileMaker world. And I don't know how well you know him, but um, when I got to know him a bit uh, sort of online on the, um, I guess probably on the FileMaker sort of lists and things um, in the early 2000s and then met him for the first time, I guess, at... The DevCon in Orlando, oh, beg your pardon, the DevCon in um, in Phoenix, which was the one where they released um, uh, FileMaker Seven. So that was probably two thousand and four. So that was probably actually John Mark. That's probably when I met you because you hadn't stopped smoking then. But anyway, I met him there for the first time actually, and I arranged a dinner to have him meet all the other British guys and some other people who are, who are good people to know at the time. And I was just so impressed because he'd actually studied philosophy. He, he, he's an artist. He makes sculptures. He'd actually studied philosophy, I think. he got, And then he'd done a PhD in something to do with computing. I'm not quite sure about the, the sequence, but he's, a, he's, what, um, he's one of those sort of multi-talented people who uses logic and intuition to do some quite amazing things so when I got a note saying he was planning to do a class in um, a three-day class I think in London in about around about 2014 I thought knowing what I know of Australian business I thought oh yes that's a cool deal because he's got a grant from the 
Australian government to export. And so he's he's off doing a world tour with some good grant aid funding. I thought that's a good move. I've known a few Australian sailors doing exactly the same thing because, you know, Australia is quite a long way from Europe. And uh, you get these really interesting things happening when those guys do that sort of stuff. And we rocked up in um, in central London and we had about, I guess, about 15 or so of some of the best pharmac developers. I mean, they're all very experienced people anyway, doing this class for three days with him. And what he did was he didn't try and do anything, anything of the hows. He spent his whole time in looking at the why. He was trying to focus on getting us to think differently about FileMaker and thinking about why things were they were. So it wasn't about techniques. It was about the approach. And in many ways, I think, John Mark, that's maybe quite similar to what you and Matt, Matt Petrosky did originally with your book on scriptology. Wasn't that about, you know, the philosophy of FileMaker and stuff like that? Well, yeah, that's why I ended up calling my classes the philosophy of FileMaker. Um, but I think what you're talking about, uh, it, to put it into a saying and tell me if I'm wrong, but uh, you're, he was teaching you how to fish and not just giving you a fish. He was teaching you stuff like that, um, but not techniques. He wanted to teach you why would you want to do that. And to me, that is absolutely the most important thing. You have to understand why FileMaker is set up this way, why it does things this way, why there's this feature and that feature, and why you use this feature in this situation and this feature over here, even though they sometimes can overlap. Yeah, it was it was about trying to develop an understanding. It certainly it certainly had a big effect on me because I sitting there on the, on the last afternoon, I was starting to think about how to do things in a much more minimalist way, thinking about how to do things much simpler, um, and also starting to do experiments. So, for example, he, he asserted, he said, it's a great mistake to have lots of subscripts. He said, in reality, there's no gain. There's actually a bit of a load from breaking up big processes into lots of subscripts, unless the subscripts are necessary because they have to be called from different places. But if you've got a single line of logic, there's absolutely no point at all in splitting it up. And so you think, okay, well, let's test this. So you then um, take a piece of logic and you basically make it into a very long script and then you run it in a loop and see how long it takes. You take the same thing and break, break it down to multiple subscripts and you do the same measurement. You say, actually, what's the difference? Of course, he's completely right. It is faster to have things in big, long scripts if, if that's what is possible because, of course, FileMaker doesn't enable the um, flow of logic to jump into the middle of a script like you could do in, I guess, in other programming situations. You've got to actually call a script as a whole. And um, the net result is that you then, of course, make your solution easier to maintain because following the flow of logic through several long scripts is, generally speaking, my experience, a bit easier than working through 45 different subscripts. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on that. Uh, I once worked on a project uh, that had already been completed, and the, the gentleman who programmed it had made one script would call a script and that script would call a script and that, I mean, it was so difficult to figure out what, just what was going on. 
Um, I had to print everything out and piece it together to to try to figure out what the script is doing. So performance is one thing. Yeah, I agree with that. But just readability and and going back and seeing what you did, it was it was crazy. And and I think Michael, didn't we do a, a podcast on on subs uh, or mention subscripts at one point? I think we did. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that was in the podcast we did on using native FileMaker functionality. And I remember having to troubleshoot a script that was running incredibly slowly when I was doing a contract up in Nevada, um, sorry, in Colorado. And the developer was calling so many different subscripts and after 38 subscripts and hundreds and hundreds of scripts, that's 200 or so, I just gave up and said, I can't be bothered to do this. I'm just going to write it from scratch as if it's never been done. And it took me so much less time to do that and try and figure out what was going on. So uh, you mentioned uh, uh, that you had met me at the DevCon uh, it's some year, and I, for, I forget. And, and we had discussed uh, uh, the, you know, my tobacco of choice at that point. This is like must have been at least fifteen years ago because I've haven't been smoking for a long time. I I stopped a long time ago, and it's been so long that I couldn't remember my brand. I had to look it up, and I finally figured out or remind, remind myself by googling that it was American Spirit. But that's how long I haven't smoked for, and uh, it's just interesting that that's how we met. I'd met a, I honestly let met a lot of people out, you know. Uh, out uh, in Phoenix, uh, you know, because they had those doors that that we would just keep hitting the 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 little button that was open it for the handicapped people because it was so hot there and we had to smoke, but we wanted the breeze to come through. So every time somebody walked through, like, oh, that's nice. We'll just keep opening it ourselves. <laughs> so we had a fun time out there, and there's a lot of smokers. And I guess at one point I talked to you uh, out there, and I, I, I I'm just I'm just kind of a, that kind of a person. I'm just unless something's uh, right in front of my face and and i have to you know i just don't remember things unless i have to and it's 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 a my downfall i guess but that's who i am oh there's there's a story about that in in one of the conan doyle stories where sherlock holmes is deliberately uh not remembering things he doesn't need to so he doesn't uh he doesn't um fill his memory memory palace with too much unnecessary information but that that i think from it would have been 2005 because 2004 was the first DevCon I went to, which was the launch of FileMaker 7. And the first DevCon, I went to lots of sessions. The second DevCon, I spent my entire time virtually talking to people outside sessions. And um, I got a sort of a a slight um, uh, echo of the same thing when I was listening to your um, session with um, uh, a nice Australian guy with base elements. Um, Nick Gore. Yeah. And uh, he's, he's a, well very good guy I've, I, I've met him at DevCon once or twice but talked to him quite a lot in the meanwhile and uh, done some great stuff and his uh, base elements plugin is is the only plugin I ever use these days I've, I've gone off plugins somewhat I found uh, keeping things a bit more vanilla and simple was, was was very good but occasionally when you need to do something then that plugin fills the gap and uh, I think um he said in in his fireside chat with you that he he's hadn't been to any any sessions at all at DevCon for the last few years because he found talking to people was far more interesting and useful and I'm I'm sure that's what I found so yeah 2005 I think it would have been so maybe co- talking to me caused you to stop smoking John Mark you know maybe this is the thing right. <laughs> 
<laughs> it might have been. I think it was my wife, though. But uh, yeah, it, I think that's a really important thing to say, though, is is that, uh, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with the sessions. We're, that's, we're not beating up on the developer conference or Claris Engage. But honestly, I every time somebody asks me, should you go to the developer? Should I go to the developer conference? It's going to cost me a lot of money. I say, yes. But don't forget to talk to people between sessions or or at, go to the bar at night or go out to dinner or sit down at lunch with somebody because that's where you're going to have get the most interesting information. You're going to meet somebody who's in the same line of work or you're going to meet somebody who knows the exact solution to your problem. I mean, all kinds of things happen. And to me, that's what the developer conference is about. It's not about the sessions. And honestly, I've never been to any sessions. I've never sat down at a session except the opening session. That's all I do. The FileMaker has a great community, I, and, I, and I've not been heavily involved in any other software development, or I've done things in other areas. I've been to some other conferences, but FileMaker is the one I know by far the best. So the FileMaker dev, uh, developer community is an enormously supportive one, and um, I've learnt most of what I've learnt basically from experience having problems and then asking on in some of the online forums uh, for help. And I've always found that people have been unfailingly um, generous. But there is, of course, the point that when you steal yourself for having to ask for help and then try to define what it is that you want to have help with, probably about one time in – sorry, not one time in five, the other way around – four times in five – by the time you've formulated your questions so that you don't look stupid, so that you know you, you've actually got your question right, you've often found you've solved it yourself by applying the rigor of trying to explain it to someone. So it's the, the, the way with many things that if you can explain something, then it's a really, really... It show, it's hard to explain things without understanding it. And when you've got a problem you've got to explain to people you've never seen, the process of creating that question, that explanation of what the question is, 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 is often takes you nine-tenths of the way there to understanding it yourself. That's also what happens when you um, go to sleep on a, a problem that you're trying to solve and during the night your subconsciousness works it out. And I had that situation happen to me the other day, and it was quite a curveball that the client threw at me, and in the morning I knew exactly how to do it. And they went, great, was that billable time? And I said, well, unfortunately not, because I can't keep tell you how long it took. But there you go. <laughs> it's interesting. You made me think of something, Nick, that I hadn't thought about for a while. And I, I started to write an article. I'm going to release it soon. But uh, I was on the forums a couple of months ago, maybe it was six months ago, time kind of in COVID is different. Um, but I was trying to, somebody posted a question and it seemed like answering his question, the way the answer he wanted was going to be overly complicated and taxing on the system. And so I said, well, why do you want to do that? And his answer is the why is not important. Only the what is. And I think that Ray was so smart in saying that the why is the most important thing. And so I'm releasing an article. I've got it written up. I just, you know, I have a bunch of Q and, and so I think that's just so smart that you mentioned that. And I think hope that people, you know, listening to this podcast understand what we're talking about because the why is the most important thing, not necessarily the what, the what comes from the why. Mm, mm, absolutely. And I mean, 
The thing about FileMaker is, again, I'm not qualified to give a, a broad opinion, but in my own experience, FileMaker is one of the most mature bits of software I've come across. Because if you look at its roots, look at how long it's been around. If you compare it to pieces of software that that have been around a long time, things like um, Adobe Photoshop, I suppose, is a good example, and one or two other things. It, other than operating systems, other than things like, like Unix and so on, FileMaker's been there for such a long time. And it's such a mature product because stuff has been produced over... Um, how long would it be? It must be at least 25 years, 30 years. I believe it's 30 years as the Claris anniversary was like last year. But and FileMaker the, came pretty quick after Claris was formed, I think. So almost well, they, 30 they, years. They bought it from Nutshell, didn't they? Nutshell started it. And then Claris bought it from them. Um, but anyway, the, the point is, because it's been around such a long time, FileMaker as a as a product, and I started calling it a platform in 2011, and it sort of a platform was sort of how I think people started thinking about it after a while because it had such a wide level of things that have been created organically over many years um, with vastly differing levels of technology available to do what they wanted to do with the operating systems at the time. And um, it's why you can spend an entire lifetime developing in FileMaker and You'd be hard-pressed to say you know the whole thing, I think. Couldn't agree more. Both John and I, Nick, are real proponents of using native functionality, and we've discussed this before. And FileMaker is an immensely powerful platform. But it seems a shame that so many developers who are new to the platform are coming in, and instead of really understand, learning and understanding what FileMaker can do, they rely on these other technologies, which are still other technologies. Yes, they work. Do they work as efficiently as FileMaker? We don't think so, in many ways. Some ways, yes, better, obviously, but not all the time. FileMaker is just incredibly powerful. So um, one of the things we like to do is is let this chat go wherever it goes. And so far, we've, we've for the most part, have, and we've, we've talked to us about some fascinating things already that I didn't, we don't have on an outline, but I'd like to try to get back to that line and, and ask you about your maxim or motto um, when you're programming, because that's one of the things we really want to talk to you about. Yeah, well, my approach, and this stems, I think, in many ways from doing that class with Ray, because I think, I think, until that time, or certainly until, until I, until I, two, until two thousand eleven, when I decided to go and spend a bit of time in the states and try and find out more about what was happening. Until that time, I'm sure a lot of what I'd done had been trying to show to myself and to clients what I could do with 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 the uh, with the medium with with filemaker and but then towards the end of the first uh decade of, of the 2000s so the period before 2010 I got more and more concerned about performance because I was wanting to have stuff ri- running over what in those days we used to call wide area networks and it's a very interesting thing that everyone who's developed in FileMaker at least a bit has been through, where you develop something locally, then you put it on your local area network and discovered certain things didn't work and you have to work out why and sort that stuff out. And then you take the same thing 
and you put it over a wired area network and suddenly you get either happiness or a complete lack of it, probably the latter. And of course, you then have the completely misplaced idea that people say, oh, FileMaker isn't very good over a wide area network. It's slow. But of course, it isn't inherently slow. It's a question of what you ask it to do. It's a question of designing stuff properly. So I'd, I wanted to learn more about it. And I was also thinking at the time about whether I might find a better medium than FileMaker for what I was doing. So I went through the process of meeting a variety of people, mainly in California and some other parts of the U.S., over the two years that I was sort of in and out of the US um, learning stuff. And at the beginning of that process, I had two very interesting meetings. First of all, I met a guy in Anaheim, um, just south of LA, who was a lawyer. And I was seeing a lot of lawyers over this period because I was making legal software. And he said to me, he said, why, when you produce software, do you ask your user to be an administrator? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, his name was Howard, 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 Howard Klein, something like that, I think his name is a long time ago. But he said, why do you ask people to do this stuff? If they want to create a record to make a note about a telephone conversation or create an address, why can't they just do it? Why do you make them go to a certain place in your software and then do this and do that in order to do it? And I thought, actually, he's right, you know. He's right. I thought... We're actually asking people to behave like a system administrator just to be a user because we sort of expect them to go to a certain part of the system to do a certain thing and all that sort of stuff. And the pro the second meeting I had in that period was I had my first meeting with Rick Kalman at FileMaker at Santa Clara. And I talked with him a bit about performance and stuff. And when I said I was going to come by and could he meet, he said, sure. And I met him and he came with a team of about eight or nine people <laughs> and we sat down with just me and the, this big team of FileMaker people to talk about performance and um, I remember he introduced Clay Michael, Michael to me at that time and said he was the soul of the, of the platform and um, that, that, that orig original meeting, that conversation with, um, with Rick and with the engineers and what have you was a very um, enlightening thing and I sort of try to maintain that um, relationship ever since because I've learned a great deal from it and the combination of those questions from people like the guy in Anaheim and the stuff I was learning from FileMaker made me focus harder and harder on how to get FileMaker to work fast and the core of it is to ask it to do less you know they always say less is more well in software You've got the laws of physics, depending on the speed of you know, the speed of light and how much electricity you've got, how fast everything cycles, all the other things. The hardware can only work at a certain speed. There is no, you know, there's an absolute limit in any at any time of what your hardware can do. So if you want to have fast software, the best way to make it fast is to ask the hardware to do less work. And so I have spent the last 10 years or so trying to learn how to get more out of it while asking it to do less work. Yeah. So I think what you're, uh, what you have written down here is ask the machine to do less, which is kind of what you kind of say before you go into a project every time all during the project and keep trying to think that as you're doing things so that you don't 
overburden it, try to show how fancy you can do things, how you can make things pop out of here. You're trying to use less ego and just make it really perform well. And that's, that to me is, I think is really in this last decade with all these, you know, mobile devices is, is key. Uh, absolutely. The, 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 this is the big thing that when, when I came to California in January, 2011, at that time, people wrote stuff to run on computers. Although we had phones, I had a I had an iPhone 4, which gu- guided me around the US for a couple of years. Um, but a phone was not really a viable device on which to do very much at that stage. It rapidly became that. And I realized over the following 18 months or so that the future was mobile. And, and ever since that time, I've never, ever designed any piece of software that wasn't designed to fit on a small phone screen. And so my software looks completely different to any traditional FileMaker software because traditional FileMaker software is still designed to sit on a landscape mode monitor, you know. And I, I make stuff where uh, the I only use the components that will stretch evenly, i.e. button bars and repeating fields because they're the only things that will scale properly on a, on a stretchy screen. And... Um, I have a small number of buttons on screens, if at all possible. Occasionally, in some cases, you have to make things on a bigger format when the software can be is going to be run on bigger format machines, but you always design it so that the user of a small format machine can do everything in a small format, but it may just take them more screens to do the same thing. Um, so, But because of the need to design for mobile... One had to change the way that you did things, and that comes back to asking the thing to do less and saying, do I really need this stuff? So when I'm designing something, I, I start off with lots of things I want to put in, and then I try and rigorously remove as much as possible and say, well, actually, that was very clever, and I didn't, I'd spent three days building that, but actually I'm going to throw that bit away because it really isn't necessary. The other thing is when you're developing stuff and you've, you've pulled together Okay, go back a step. When you, if you're designing things in a more traditional software environment, if you don't plan it properly, you've got no chance at all. One of the, um, one of the exciting but also dangerous things about FileMaker is you can start building something without any idea about what it's going to be. You can just start, and initially it's very easy. But then, of course, you end up with structures that are hideously inefficient later on so having started and started playing with it it's a really good idea to sit down and do some planning in my experience and when you plan it and you work you you use i usually use omnigraphle as as a basic tool you look at what you've actually got there see how the things connect together then you start thinking well actually i can get from a to b a lot quicker by doing this and this and cutting these components out and putting these bits together so my cycle to create stuff that's fast and ask the machine to do less is to get something that works, get the basic structure, the basic architecture about right, and then start removing as much as I possibly can. And it takes it takes time to do it, but you do then end up with stuff that works reliably for a very long time. Well, that, that of course, comes down to the root idea of KISS, keeping it simple, stupid. But you can't get to simplicity without going through complexity. And you have to be willing to take the extra time 
to simplify something once you've written it. If 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 it was easy to do things simply, everyone would do simple stuff, wouldn't they? I mean, no one would would willingly do a lot more work to make it more complex. It's just that I think there's a there's one of those sort of sayings which is attributed sometimes to Winston Churchill and sometimes to other people, but it's it's somebody stood up in some legislature to make some speech and they they started off by saying I'm very sorry but I haven't had time to write a short speech because of course it takes far longer to prepare a short speech which hits all the nails and does it all right than it is to do a sort of a you know a verbal sort of ramble through the things that you're thinking about at the time and trying to get to the right point yeah it's very interesting now in 2016 you presented at the developer conference. It was called Building High Performance Mobile Custom Apps. Was that recorded or is there anything written that people can find if they're more interested in this, this you know, building these, uh, these mobile uh, apps that you talk about? Uh, it's certainly, the, certainly um, the full um, recording is, is available somewhere through. I, I must admit that these days I, I can't always find things on on claris.com as in the community pages and elsewhere as I used to. I, I found that it's, um, for some reason, I don't understand why it seems to be become a little bit less easy to use than it used to be, but um, that could, of course, just be my inability to um, cope readily with change, of course. You're absolutely right, of course, Nick, and it's a great shame because it used to be a really useful resource, but now I hardly ever use it because it's just too difficult to use. But 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 nonetheless, um, they do have a lot of resources there if you can work out how to find them. And so I think all of the DevCon sessions the last few years have been recorded and can be viewed online and and and, and elsewhere. But I I I prepared a session which I thought was actually quite a good session, and I didn't get a particularly big audience for it because um, one of my other um, uh, the people I have very high regard for at, at uh, what was FileMaker, John Thatcher, had his extremely good session on the, on Top Call on at the same time as mine. So I'm afraid that I my audience was was fairly fairly small compared to the, the the star attraction. But what I tried to do in that session was to um, say that we should think like engineers. That really we are engineers, and I actually. Um, went back to a bit of um, academic text I'd read a few years ago about the uh, the great um, economist Karl Marx, although he's obviously famous for other things in more political sense, but he was actually an economist. And he wrote um, a, a note in the sometime in the late 1800s, which were his thoughts on machines. And he was imagining what would happen to an economy if the cost the marginal cost of creating new machines was zero and this is something which apparently was only ever translated from the original german into other languages in the 1970s and it's called fragment on machines and you can find it on the, on the internet and of course what he was imagining was actually software because when you create a software program if i write a program or you write a program we can copy and paste it the marginal cost of reproduction of that machine is zero. There is no cost. The only costs are involved with um, distribution, advertising, marketing, support, all these other things. But the actual cost of production of a piece of software as a copy of 
the previous one is zero. And that actually explains a lot about what you're seeing in the world today because the world used to be based on models where it costs you a lot of money to create new machines. And so I tried to bring a little bit of that into my DevCon session. Then I went on to demonstrate using a um, uh, an app, and I put into the app um, several million records, which were postcode districts in the United States and about seven or eight other countries. So I basically created postcode databases, or postcode and place databases for seven or eight different countries from material I could scrape off the web so that, that these records would then inform a Google map um, uh, representation. And then I said to the audience, right, we've got all these different places. Just tell me where's your hometown and we'll, and on my phone, on my, um, it would be probably an iPhone 5 then, using a cellular network, I will show you the result on the screen of your search of a FileMaker database that was on um, one of Richard, Richard Carlton's servers in, uh, in Santa Clara. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a, it wasn't a continent away from Las Vegas. It was only a, a state or so away, but it was a it was a good enough WAN test. And I could search amongst these millions, well, these I can't remember the exact number, but these very large number of records with FileMaker on a phone, and show you the result of that search in about three quarters of a second. And that was what I was trying to show that if you do FileMaker the right way, it's really really fast, but you know, you have to focus on doing things in a way that actually works and um, avoid encumbering it with lots of things that are slow. And of course, part of that development process is when you start building your model and you start testing it over a wide area network, you have to look at every part of it and identify which of the bits that are slowing it down and then either work out a different way of doing it or removing those bits. So you end up with just the bit required to do the job, and then you get fantastic process. And what was interesting for me, technically, was that um, when I was in the States, I think in probably 2013, it was about the time that FileMaker had greatly improved its find function. And I, I, I can't remember which version it was, but I do remember being told in Santa Clara that they were doing this and find was going to get a lot better. And the point was that before that, when you did a find, you only got a screen response when it had found everything. And they basically changed it so it was phased. So you started getting a screen response while other stuff was still being found and coming up later on. So when you walk into the entrance hall at, at the uh, Claris building in Santa Clara, the wedge, as you walk in on the left on the wall, and unless they've changed it, of course, they've got a whole load of, of picture frames. And in those picture frames, each one of them, there must be between 60 and 100 of them, is a, is a pattern application. Because FileMaker has got loads, Claris now has got loads and loads of patterns on all the stuff they've invented. And you look at those those. Um, patent certificates and you see the names of the people on them because as you probably know when you apply for a patent it isn't applied for in the name of the company it's implied it's applied for in the name of the people who invented it so you see the 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 people in FileMaker who've come up with ideas and who've developed the ideas 
actually memorialise on that wall of certificates. And if you look there, you'll find that one that they, they've got for this new form of find. And of course, that's why in FileMaker performance-wise, if you want to do something to a certain set of records, whether to display them or do something to them, you're always far better off going to the right table, finding the right records, and then processing them and coming back again than you are by going through a relationship or any other method, because the find in FileMaker is exceptionally effective. Yeah, I always tell my students that relationships are the slowest thing in FileMaker, so I couldn't uh, agree with you more on that. Can you specify some common things? I know we can't talk about everything here. We limited on time, but maybe a couple of specific things that generally slow down FileMaker or people don't consider as something that might slow down FileMaker. And that if you if you kind of play with them correctly or don't play with them at all or play with them in the right situations, then they won't slow you down. I think the starting point there for most people is you've got to look at the default behaviors. Now, when you create your new FileMaker file, and I would say as a little note there that I used to make multi-file solutions, and since 2011, I've only ever worked in a single file. I've never, I've completely avoided multi-file solutions ever since then, because I just discovered that there was 101 reasons why putting everything in one file was a lot, lot better than having multi-files. And when you, but when you create that file, or you create an additional table, or you add additional fields, do anything, the default behavior is that everything tends to get indexed. If it could be indexed, it's indexed because the idea is that you want people to be able to find stuff easily, which is fine. But indexing is a really big load. You can create a table with a certain amount of data in it. If you did an experiment and created a single table file and then you import it into a text field, an indexed text field in that table a, a, a string of a certain length and then you imported a hundred thousand of them or something like that and then you looked at the fight the size of the whole thing you discover it'll get a lot bigger when you've used it a little bit than it was originally and a lot bigger than you thought it would be for the data in it and that's because of the size of the indexing now the indexing has got several different iterations no indexing or bit of indexing or more indexing and, and there are lots of specialist stuff on exactly how it works but the starting point for me is to turn off indexing on absolutely everything and only turn it on where it's actually needed and then what i do for finding is i have a single uh, field in every table which i normally called summary and into that field i have an auto enter expression that adds into that field in a list stuff from any other fields I want to be able to search on, then I only ever search on that field. And so I always get the right record. So I don't actually use, I know that this is this is an anathema to many FileMaker developers, but I, very, I don't give access to find mode as such in any of the stuff I write. I always put in a search field or a filter field or something like that to enable people to find what they want. But the point is that by removing lots of indexing, we make it faster. The second thing is, and I'm sure most people know this anyway, that the so-called narrow tables are faster. If you have a FileMaker table with 10 or 50 fields in it, it's going to perform very, very differently to a FileMaker table with 
500 or 1,000 fields in it. And the natural expression of that was something that I experimented with after the Ray Cooligan course in 2014 or wherever. So I said, right, I'm going to make a uh, an app. Uh, well, it wasn't called an app in those days. It was probably called a solution. But I was going to make a file, a thing, which had only one data field in it. And I was going to have a single data field. I was going to have a type so that I could say that different records were of different types. I then created subsidiary um, tables, which would sort of be automatically populated from the main data table, depending on the type of the record. And in fact, the DS Benchmark app that I made public domain in 2015 that is actually, it's a cut-down version of that. It's got everything I've talked about in that uh, open-source solution. It's a single it's a single data field powers the entire app so that if you wanted to do a data transfer from one version to another, you merely moved the contents of that one table with that one core field in it and everything else replicated completely. And that the, the, the demo file I use at the DevCon presentation 2016, again, was using that. So the if you look at um, DS Benchmark, then you'll see that the 2016 DevCon session examples are actually built into it. So that is about making the core thing as narrow as possible reducing the indexing as much as possible and avoiding using relationships more than you really need to, splitting the relationship graph up, up obviously into different sections which are not joined because you know everyone who, who, who uses FileMaker will be well aware that FileMaker attempts to evaluate the known universe from the context of any position you're in. So when you're, when the user is in an app, they're on a certain layout at any time they're in a layout and that layout defines the context that says where they are in the relationship graph. And at that point, FileMaker will endeavor to evaluate everything it can see from that perspective, which is why if you can see only a little, it'll be fast. And if you can see a lot, it'll be slow. Now, when you say C, do you mean, uh, do you mean stuff that's hidden under a tab? Would that be something that it sees? Good question. Um, I don't know. I actually don't know whether, as far as I can see, no pun intended, um, it evaluates everything that can be evaluated from that context. But I, I re I'm absolutely not certain whether by, for example, putting something, putting a field off the screen. If you put something off the screen, it's still evaluated. The it's it's not not evaluated. It, the field contents do not become inactive. The expressions don't stop working because they're not on the screen. And if you put things on another tab, I don't think that makes a lot of difference either. So I would have said that everything is evaluated if it's part of the table on which you currently are but there could be a I'd be interested to learn whether there's some refinement to that I I use tabs a lot because with a small form factor 
um, tabs is a is a useful thing. So I regularly have layouts which would could have more than a thousand different fields on the layout, but these fields I've just said I use narrow things. What I do is I use a lot of repeating fields, and you everyone will probably remember that the limit on a repeating field is 32,000. So what that means is that when you are developing a system and you want to add additional fields to it, if you add additional fields by merely adding additional repeating fields, um, this doesn't have any effect on your import and export procedures because the file mapping is exactly the same because the FileMaker handles it automatically. It's also the case you can put thousands of fields into a single repeating field and FileMaker handles it many, many times faster than it would be if you put all of those fields into a table as separate fields. Yeah, and I think uh, what you need to watch out about on that, uh, and there's there's always benefits, advantages, and disadvantages, but just for the audience who's listening, when you put everything into a repeating field, it's going to search every repetition in there. So if you're searching repetition one, it searches all the other repetitions as well. It's it's an interesting thing. I I, I can't remember why I started doing it, but I, I, I tried it a long time ago, and it worked well. So with the, um, the web creation software I've been working on the last few years. If you're creating web pages using a database, you end up having to have a lot of different places to hold hundreds of different values for any web page because you've got every different object has got a whole series of different properties you can apply to it in the CSS. And I... I've been using that method now for quite a few years and I can open something on a phone and I get a really sharp response from it. Well, notwithstanding the fact that there are in the region of 5,000 repeats uh, on, on the core data fields that are being used. And I think it's probably because I'm not actually searching on those fields. I'm actually using other methods of searching. Um, I'm certainly not indexing them either. Yeah, no, I just merely mentioned it to make sure people understood. And, and uh, you've done a lot of research into this and done a lot of projects with it. And that's one of the things that, uh, you know, that they might watch out if they're trying to implement some of these things that you're talking about. But you mentioned um, uh, that a single file is better than multi-files. And, and I'm not in disagreement. I'm just curious, uh, you know, you said there was a lot of reasons. Maybe you can mention a couple of things. Why why a single file? Like for, for me, um, the main reason why I don't like to use multiple files is because it makes development much more difficult. In fact, that's why both Michael and I are completely against uh, this, the, you know, the the single file interface or the multi, you know, the, you have an interface file uh, over to your data file. We're, we're against that. 
whole idea because when you're developing, you have to go back and forth between the two files. Um, you know, just for that reason alone, there's very many other reasons, but just having to go into this file and then go to manage database and then get out of there and come back over here and go into manage database. To me, that just wastes a lot of time and be able to go into a single file and, and work is just so free flowing for me. It just saves me a ton of time. But I'm, I'm curious what, what your thoughts are on that so that we can educate our audience here. Of course, the big drawback with uh, having multiple files is building the security schema and you've got to do it for every single file. So it's a lot of extra work and quite honestly, it's not worth bothering with. But my observation is um, you must be the only person in the world left using repeating fields because I haven't used them for years other than for very specific purposes where they are useful. But for generally, they're not because they're so limited. You can't sort, you can't group, you can't isolate. Not without a lot of extra work. I I do use repeating fields quite a bit. In fact, I'm doing a a, a multilingual system um, in that's the the in preferences the person can set up what language they want, and all the field labels are done with global repeating fields, and they're set on open based on what their languages and preferences, so they can read everything that's going on. Well. Yeah, I mean, there was a conversation on, on one of the um, developer lists a few years back now where somebody challenged people to say what they were using repeating fields for. And they were talking, it was actually talking about globals and repeating fields, I think. And there was also a proposal a few years ago where people were talking about maybe FileMaker would deprecate repeating fields. And I said, if they started, I said, that if they did that, I told Rick. Come, I said, if you try and do that, I said, I shall take a tent and pitch it outside your front door. I won't go till you reinstate them because I think that, I mean, they're a historical anachronism. They were created originally before FileMaker was a relational database, if I understand it correctly. And I'm sure, John, that you, you can remember back to those days. But the fact is that they are hideously efficient because they enable you to have a lot of different places to put data in a table while the table still behaves like a narrow table. Um, so the reason, so how I use, the other point is that in order to refer to them, you're only distinguishing one repeating field from another by use of um, the number, the repeat number. And of course, the number is something that's very easy to calculate. So for example, you can do the sort of um, text parsing and substitution that I'm doing in creating um, HTML within Line CSS, you can do that very efficiently by having um, hundreds of expressions that do substitutions or that prepare the variables to go into a master substitution. You can do this very efficiently with rows and rows and rows of um, expressions setting the variables that use repeating field structure so all you're doing is just each one is the same except you're changing one number to refer to a different field if you had to refer to hundreds of different fields by name even if you name them in some numerical manner it would be far more difficult and complicated and time consuming to set up and, and to run so yeah it's it's look it's not for everyone but it is there it does actually work effectively and if you ever have the situation where you want to upgrade your system from one version to another, um, then not having to um, update your your export um, 
script by adding in the new fields you've added is a real plus. So as I said before, if you have a repeating field with one with 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 two repeats in it or thirty two thousand, the export script step is exactly the same. It all works perfectly. But to go back to the question about multiple files, when I started building the system for to run my law office in nineteen ninety seven, um, at that time it was pre FileMaker seven, so it meant that we had a different file for every table so basically you had i had 12 files in my system and that was great because that's what you had to do because you couldn't have more than one table in one file but when we got to 2004 and went to to .fp7 format files then you could have multiple tables in one file and i ended up with the system where i had and this is exactly what John was saying. He, he, he you and uh, you both don't like. Um, I had a back-end data file that sat on the server, and I had a front-end UI file that sat on each user's machine. I then had a separate license file on the server, and I had two other files, which for the life of me, I can't remember what they did, but they were terribly important. I'm sure. I think one was a, one was a sort of. Um, yeah, what, what one file had got all the stuff for creating new records in it so that you could update it. The idea was you could update bits of the system without updating the whole thing. But the problem was that the, the startup, but in more, more particularly the closing down of such a multiple file system is potentially extremely complex. And when Michael was saying about security, now the area in which FileMaker in my view, is probably hardest to deal with because it's time-consuming and laborious, and it, there's no way yet that I've seen of doing it quickly and easily. Designing and security to FileMaker is a, is, a, is, a, is a tough business. You can do it, but there's no way of sort of creating a text file that sets everything. It, you just have to go through with thousands of little clicks and entering things and setting things up and changing things and what have you. And when you have that in, that in multiple files, is even more, as Michael says. But my problem was that I then discovered that I had a considerable slowness in starting up and closing down, and that was actually because of the interaction between different files calling each other. And I ended up asking Ray Cooligan about it, and he did an analysis and told me what the problem was, and then I worked through and, and put it all right. But it was just so complicated. I thought in the future, I thought I'll never, ever start a multiple file solution again. I'll always have everything in one file. But the reason people use multiple files, I think, is they, they may have thought in the past, maybe, that it was easier for multiple team members to work on. I know I used to think that, but I think ultimately it's not worth the hassle, to be honest. You know, the... There are very few occasions when I will use a separate file. One is when I just want to have a reporting file, perhaps, that just does reports and it doesn't have any access to the data other than view only. And the other time that it's very useful is that when you're using virtual lists so that each user has the virtual list file and data on their machine. So what they're doing isn't affecting anybody else who might be trying to run a virtual list routine at the same time. But other than that, one file and one file only, absolutely. So yeah, I think that's an important subject to talk about. Uh, do you use virtual lists a lot, Nick? 
I I did for a while. I, I said earlier that that I I spent some time with Bruce Robertson. And enjoyed his hospitality in Redmond, and um, he he explained the intricacies of virtual list to me because I, I I played with them, but I wasn't really very sure. And they are quite a complicated thing to get your mind around, and they are a tremendously useful thing to use in certain at certain times. And I built an entire app based on. Um, the interface being completely run with virtual lists. So all the data you saw were all virtual lists. So you basically had a single interface that was then repopulated with it with whatever class or classes of data you decided to extract from the underlying tables. Um, and uh, But I don't use them a lot now. I mean, it's a concept that is useful to bring in on occasions. But I... I've found that by trying to keep things simple, I've ended up trying to I try to be aware of what FileMaker is good at and what it's not good at. And I've tried to focus on using the things it's good at in certain circumstances and avoiding the things that it's not so good at. Because as we said before, it can do many, many, many things. And the trick is to understand which tool to use in a certain circumstance. So if you want something that's going to run with just one user on your phone, you can do things in a very different way. It's if you want to make basically a personal app that sits on a phone and holds your important information or gives you access to your local football team or whatever it is you want to do, that's a very different beast to something that's going to be working over um, a wide area network to multiple devices with different screen sizes and multiple users with multiple access levels. And um, so virtual lists is always there as something to to use when required, but I'm not currently using them a great deal. Can I ask you uh, to give a basic definition for some of our listeners who have no idea what a virtual list is, and maybe uh, if you've got, I'm putting you on the spot here, but maybe a, one good example of where a virtual list might help somebody and why they might want to look into it. Like you don't have to know everything about virtual lists. You just have to know when it might be a good idea to use them, and then you can delve into them. And so I'm just giving people who maybe have not used them, you know, let's just try to define it uh, basically and, and come up with a good example of when, you know, one good example where they might use that. I, I haven't I haven't made a new virtual list for a while, but I can think back to when I was sitting there with Bruce at his breakfast table talking about it. And, and the way he always described it to me was he said that you have to send FileMaker off to walk the data set to pick up the records that you want and then to copy that data into a... Um, a reusable list structure. So what you would do is have a um, a set of fields that could be displayed on the screen, which you then populate with data from whatever source you're using. So that the the app that I created at the time, using that extensively, was designed to run on an iPad. That was a that was a big mistake. I was wrong form factor, but I, I built. I spent six months building a system to run on iPads for for attorneys. And although you had underlying tables of clients and cases and notes and time records and people and all the other things in the interface, 
you just had a an interface which was then populated from whichever underlying data set you wanted to get the data. So you had to walk the data set in order to pick up the data. And as you walked the data set, you were taking those values, putting them into this virtual list. And it's called a virtual list because, although it looks like a FileMaker list, you're not actually looking at the underlying records. You're looking at copies of the underlying records. And I suppose, I'm not sure whether you might almost think about it a little bit like maybe a SQL system when, you know, FileMaker were used to directly accessing the data in a SQL system and many other database systems, if I understand it correctly, you're not actually directly accessing the data. What you're doing is you're pulling up a set of data you have access to, you're making changes to it, and then that set is being written back to the underlying um, the underlying tables. And I think I think of a virtual list in a similar way. The thing that I can't remember off the top of my head is there's some some clever bits to do with auto-entering, which is the way that Bruce showed me to do, which I'm sure I could find it, but I can't. You Basically, you got your display table to auto-enter the data you were picking up from the underlying record, and the display table normally we set to a 1,000 um, a thousand records and you could then work on that data and then when you changed it you then wrote the data back to the underlying record now that may be a very different model to the sort that you've been using john and michael so so i wanted to, to kind of paraphrase and maybe use an analogy i think of and tell me if i'm wrong here because i'm not the, i'm not i haven't used virtual lists as much as you um but i think of it as a glass and you can put orange juice in that. You can put milk in it. You can put water in it. And these are all those other tables. You're grabbing the data from the other tables and putting them into this glass. Would that be a reasonable analogy? Or Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's, it's a reusable space. And the reason for doing it, why would one do it? One, I think, I think it came out of reporting. I think it came out originally out of people wanting to create reports where the nature of reporting in FileMaker is about displaying a list with summaries and subsummaries, basically. This is sort of the traditional way of doing it. Um, and that raises a lot of uh, challenges, particularly on larger data sets, particularly over wide area network, et cetera. You get all the issues about you know, automatically re-evaluated summary fields and things like that, which can cause mayhem. But I think what where Bruce was coming from originally, or at least in part, was the idea that if you wanted to have a report on a few sides of, 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 of US letter-style paper, um, why not create a single layout that could actually accommodate that report and put whatever data you want to put on it, on it as opposed to trying to access this underlying stuff? And, of course, one of the great things about it was that because the virtual list table you're working with isn't connected to everything else through relationships. Um, I can't remember if there's any relationships at all, actually, but but it isn't it isn't in, it isn't a, a key central part of the relationship diagram, shall we say. It means you're not then going to be encumbered by the um, evaluation of hundreds of thousands of possible values through the relationship graph. Well, one of the key things with a virtual list, of course, is that you can actually get data from multiple tables. You're not limited to just two tables and running a report from the child 
version, invoices and line items. You can grab other information from other tables and just insert it and you are basically writing the report exactly as you want with no limitations. That's what Virtual List does. Exactly, exactly that. Because otherwise, because you, you can't, you, you, you can't display different FileMaker tables in a single portal or in a single list. You're limited. So if you wanted to do that type of reporting through, for example, a table, then you end up having to put in, I would have thought, a load of calculated or auto-entered fields in that table to display data from another table. And of course, that's creating an awful lot of complexity. So I think where Bruce's genius was in part was saying, well, why do we need all that complexity? Why don't we instead walk over the underlying data, pick up the bits we want and put it into our display, evaluate, you know, look at it, print it, do whatever we want to it, and maybe if we're clever, write data back to the underlying display, but let's not actually have to try and display the underlying data at all. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I, we've never talked about virtual lists, and and I don't use them. I don't think I've ever done a production solution with them. But they're always. It's about having. I always say it's about having this tool belt. And I think you'll probably agree with this: is that you've got the you know your different tools on this belt, but you got to know when to bring that tool out to use it. And so becoming familiar, maybe not intimate with virtual list, but at least knowing the idea behind them, maybe looking at a couple example files and then going, okay, this is where I'd use this, or this would work perfectly here. That's the best time to go ahead and start studying more about virtual lists. I, I think that the underlying point here for, for, for me is that this is the point where you come back to what we touched on a bit earlier, which is that relationships are slow. Relationships are Marvelous things, they're very useful to use, but you really don't want to be using lots and lots of relationships for lots and lots and lots of records. So it's, it's a great tool, but if you want to do some heavy lifting, you want to be thinking about not using relationships to do it if you've got a large amount of data, because you're really going to be on to hiding to nothing. So in those, so you then think, well, what could I do if I can't use a relationship well? You can do several things. You can walk. You can walk the underlying data and pick up values using what I call FQL, which is you know the the the, the FileMaker so-called SQL um, uh, query idea that you you create an expression. That expression actually defines which records from a table that the query is going to pick up and put into your um, into your results. So if you look at the DS Benchmark app and go to the performance dashboard screen, if you click the buttons on the screen for one second, two seconds, three seconds, four seconds, the results you get there are using the, the FQL system. And I only wrote it that way because I wanted to try using that method to see how well it worked. And what it meant was that you could have zero relationships and a multiplicity of different queries. If I'd done it the relationship way, I would have had to have had 
a relationship for the one second button, a relationship for the two second button, etc. And that would have been complicated to do. And it would have created a lot of load when nothing was happening. Whereas if I did it the FQL, the FileMaker query language method, I could write my expression and it then picked the data up from the underlying table and gave me the result I wanted. And of course, that's very similar, really, to what virtual lists are doing, except with virtual lists, you're, you're actually physically going and getting the data and deciding how to display it. And the FQL method is doing a similar thing, but in a method that FileMaker's already written for you. And, and I think what I could also say on that, and this is an observation that comes from some work I've done recently. So as part of my um, uh, performance research work in order to um, write some new material on performance in the next few months, I've been working with a large database of images. So I've got a about 170,000 images um, that I've built an app to sort of basically handle. And we can go into that maybe later if, it, if it's something of interest. But the, the core point is that in order, to, um, in order to do stuff with this, by far the best way to get the data is not to get the data through a relationship. It is to, it is to pick up um, the parameters I want to search on go to the table where the data is, do a find using that extremely efficient FileMaker find, and then having got that uh, data set in the underlying table, do the operation I want to apply to it, whatever that is, and then come back again. And that method, particularly when you're going over a wide area network, is many, many times faster than trying to do the same thing through a relationship. Now, I, I think, Nick, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, your knowledge of FileMaker comes from a variety of avenues. You've talked to people. You've probably read articles, watched videos, DevCon presentations. You know, there's lots of ways, but I think the most important way that you've learned, and if people can understand this, get this as a takeaway, because I see uh, people making this mistake all the time is you need to experiment. You need to investigate and look into why things are happening the way they are. What should I do? Oh, I read this thing on on the internet. Maybe I should try it out. Don't just implement it. And I think that's what you've done a lot, which has made you very successful uh, in the filemaker market. Well, well, I, I I couldn't possibly comment on on my own success, but yeah, I mean, I my my approach has been to observe and to measure and to try and work out what's happening. And if I can work out what I think is happening, then to create a method of testing that. Um, so if I'm, if I want to do a certain thing and I think, well, I can do this in one of three different ways, um, I might from experience say, well, I think this particular way is the best way to do it. Or if I'm not sure, then I might think, well, let's just spend 10 minutes. Make it, Don't try and do it in the thing you're working in. Just make a new file, a single-purpose file, just to do this test and do whatever that thing is that you want to do. Test it out and, and then make a different version and test that and just see which seems to work. Because ever since FileMaker included um, the originally undocumented 
um, millisecond measuring uh, function, you've been able to measure the elapsed time for doing anything you want reasonably accurately within FileMaker without there being any hassle. So when you build a system, there, there are one or two things I always put in before I do anything else. I always put in a version history because I make new versions of things I'm working on. I normally make a new version every day. And so I can look at the version history of something like EcoWeb and I can go back through five years worth of development work and, and see a different entry in the version history for every single day, which tells me what I did on that day. So I can sort of remember where I was at at that point. You, if you then have a problem with a, something where you maybe make a misstep, you maybe do something you regret, maybe you're a bit tired and do something a bit silly, you can always go back to previous version. The second thing I always put in is an event table so that I'm able to easily write data to an event table um, which is both useful in general terms, but when you're trying to debug um, perform script on server, it's essential because the only way you can see what's happening in that remote um, user session on the server is by having that user session write to an event table that you can then read from where you are. So if you've done those things, you can then, of course, put in... Um, uh, something to, to, to measure elapsed time for various operations. So you can then create an experiment where you say, okay, let's put in temporarily a thing that um, tests how long this particular thing takes. Let's then look at the event table uh, a little while later and, and, and look at the different options. And that way, again, we you know observe, measure, and analyze. I'm hoping we can go into, into perform script on server and talk a little bit about that. We'll refer to PSOS, which means perform script on server. Let's maybe start a little bit with a, a scenario, a common scenario where, where it would be helpful to use perform script on server rather than the regular perform script. And I think it mostly comes in the situations of mobile apps, right? Uh, well, I think anything which is anything where you've got something on a remote server um, is going to benefit generally from that. But the things that do benefit most are the things that take the most time. And Creating new records in FileMaker is probably the most laborious thing it does, second only to deleting records, because FileMaker, because FileMaker gives you direct access to the data, so you're not working through any sort of intermediary process to change data. FileMaker has got a lot of stuff under the hood that's dealing with record locking, with protecting the data, with ensuring that one person can edit it and another person can't until the other person is finished and all that sort of stuff. You've also got the whole issue about, about how commits work, where you can essentially unravel things that have happened if you haven't taken the requisite step to, um, to sort of solidify the whole thing. And because of those considerations, I guess, I mean, I don't know, but I'm, I'm, this is merely my understanding of it, the, the, the most labor-intensive thing, most labor-intensive single, single operation in FileMaker is to create a record or to delete a record if you exclude dealing with large numbers of records through rela relationships and things like that, but, you know, in, in terms of dealing with a single thing. So when I was building the app framework that of which a cut down version is is freely available in ds benchmark um 
what I had to do there was to make something which was efficient at dealing with those issues over a wide area network. Now, DS Benchmark runs on the server. So the whole point about it is that from a user workstation or, or a mobile phone or whatever, you tell DS Benchmark to start doing a job on the server, and it actually creates virtual clients. So every virtual client it creates is essentially is a performed script on server with the little checkbox on that um, uh, on 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 that that function or that 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 part of the script. The checkbox that says "Wait for this to complete." You don't check that box. Now, what that means is that that if you're looping every second and every second you're saying go off and start this process on the server, then you make a new one every second and the ones that you've started go off as autonomous, unique user sessions on the server. Because when you start the process of perform script on server, what you're doing is you are creating a completely new unique user session, which is not you. It is a unique new user session, which has to start the um, the file, the, the app. It has to go in through its security. It has to start from the outside, go the whole way into where it has to do the operation. It then does whatever it's being told to do, and it'll continue doing it until it's finished. And that raises a large number of issues for someone using it for the first time because a you can't see what it's doing and b until you've got your brain around the fact that it is a completely autonomous new user session it's hard to understand that merely telling it to go and run a certain script on the server actually involves it starting up the server-side file from scratch and doing all the things that you would do when you first log in and i i don't know how widely it's used i know that with the stuff I've got on DS Benchmark, I can um, delete a data set on that in a few seconds. Whereas if I didn't use Perform Script on Server to delete the data set, I'd be sitting there for hours while it's busy deleting it. Now, if you take a step back, the, the metaphor I would use for this is an aircraft. And the standard FileMaker method of flying an aircraft is the filemaker sits in the client seat in the cockpit and you've got a set of controls you've got these long wires and hydraulic pipes and everything going to various parts of the aircraft to control it and you are telling the ailerons or the elevators on the aircraft to go off and do 10,000 different movements and every one is being controlled directly from the pilot's seat, from the control column. But that pilot's seat is actually miles or thousands of miles away down a wide area network. And every single one of those movements of the control stick is a command going to the server to be dealt with, fed back to the client machine, and then it goes back and forth. So you end up with, with a very... Um, chatty, a very um, communication-heavy um, operation, which is necessarily slow. Whereas perform script on server, you send 
a package of instructions off to the aileron and say, go and do 10,000 things and finish when you finish it. it it's, it's completely autonomous. And, and you could, of course, use the standard thing, which is say, now let's let my script not move forward until that process has completed. So the process you tell it to um, fulfill on the aileron, it presumably has an internal message it sends back and says, I finished at this point to enable the, the script to then continue. Or you tell it, you don't tell it to, to wait, in which case you could then tell the other aileron to do 10,000 things and you probably crash the plane. But the, the point is that it's this, if you're sitting looking at your phone and your phone's going through a cellular network and then through a load of optical fiber and going across the Atlantic or to the other side of the United States. In fact, my experience is the transatlantic links are a lot faster than the links between the East and the West Coast and the US. Um, so you've got all this latency built in, which ends up, it's like flying a plane with elastic control cables. It's so unresponsive and so slow until you take all of that um, control out and say, actually, let's just send the whole set of instructions off to the back end, do it and come back when you're finished. So the, 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 the thing about, about understanding what's going on, I mean, I referred briefly to the US continental communications. Now, when I was in 2011 and 12, when I was in the US, I was based in Florida, I was based on the East Coast, I was based in the centre north, I was based on the Pacific Northwest and in, and in and California at different times. And what I discovered is that the main communication links in the United States follow the railroad, tra the railroad tracks. It's one of the best place to put a server in the US if you want to have one server is in Chicago, because all railways lead to Chicago, because that's where the cattle trains went. That's where the you know the center of the meat industry was. The railway lines all go to Chicago, and if I noticed that the 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 speed of communication over wide area network from the Pacific Northwest to somewhere like Virginia was appalling, because it, it, it there was no sort of direct route. It all had to go via Chicago and other, probably other places as well. So um, it's also a very long way, as I discovered to my surprise. The first time I ever I'd flown from the United Kingdom to California a few times, which is about a 10-hour flight or eight-hour flight, something like that. But, you know, you you go over Greenland and Canada and stuff and you get there. And I was really surprised the first time I ever flew from California to New York because it was like flying across the Atlantic. It was such a long way. And, um, you know, you don't realise that you do that as a Brit when we live on a very small island off the northwestern shore of Europe. You don't realise just how wide the United States is. And of course, that presents real, real challenges when you're running FileMaker over a wide area network, because it's a long way. And that long way means you're restricted by the speed of light. You know, so late latency is about the fact that electricity doesn't move instantaneously. It moves at the speed of light, less presumably all of the things put in its way. And so latency is... Latency doesn't matter a great deal if you're sending a packet that is autonomous and just going off and doing a thing. It doesn't really matter. But if that packet has to um, walk a thousand miles where every single step it has to send you uh, feedback and you have to tell it to take the next step, it takes a very long time. 
And so it's again, it's like this metaphor with the aircraft. If if your if your your data packet was um, this is a slight exaggeration, but it's the same thing. It's it's the right idea. This data packet it doesn't move anywhere without FileMaker saying take a step forward. Did you get there okay? Is everything okay? Right now, take another step. And so it's this sort of idea of it's better to understand. It's better to what Ray Culligan said. You know, if you if you can get your brain around understanding what's actually going on, then it makes it much easier to work out which of the tool set might be more appropriate. I think. Now you just wrote or released an article on Linux, uh, FileMaker Server for Linux, and and we're curious to find out uh, a little bit from that article. Uh, and you know, is really comes down to is Linux really faster than FileMaker Server on a Mac or FileMaker Server on a Windows machine? There's a lot of talk out there, and I'm just curious about your findings. I released DS Benchmark in 2015, and I've been working on it for a, a, from late the last, the previous year, 2014. So I've spent about six years or so testing different FileMaker Server systems, and quite a few other developers around the world have been using it over that period for doing the same thing. So we've got a fairly big data set on 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 how different systems work, what their sort of load capacity is, etc. And because that tool really hasn't changed in five years, other than some very minor modifications, it does exactly the same thing. It's a really good benchmark, and hence its name. It's also, by the way, uh, translated into six different languages because I gave it away to the community for free. I had FileMaker developers in various parts of the world who, for free, did um, uh, different language um, dictionaries for it, so it could be used internationally, and they did all for free because I was giving the thing free. So that's another good example of cooperation. The when I became conscious of the Linux um, option last summer, and I hadn't thought about it much, I'd rather pass me by. I, I let FileMaker know I was interested in in looking at it, and I spent a few weeks playing with it, trying to get my mind around how to use Linux because I hadn't used Linux before, and it seemed to me that in theory. The Linux option should be better because a hosting solution, a hosting system using Linux rather than um, Microsoft uh, Windows Server 2016, um, there's obviously some significant licensing fees there, which you're not getting with Linux, and hence there's more money to sort of pay for the hardware, etc., for the hosting company, etc., I haven't in this particular study looked at OS 10 or Mac OS as it is now because there's currently no serious Mac OS hosting going on the FileMaker community I'm aware of. I use old Macs for various things. I've got two two Mac minis in a data center in the UK I've, I've had for years. I use for all sorts of um, development projects and client things, but... Um, there's no sort of up-to-date Mac stuff, really, that's being used for hosting. So I've sort of put that to one side. So I said, what's happening in the market is that businesses that require a fairly serious level of FileMaker hosting or FileMaker server are going to be either using what was the Amazon option, um, the AWS option, which has now become FileMaker Cloud 2, or they're going to be using um, one of the various commercial providers who... I'm assuming largely using 
um, Microsoft Windows Server 2016. I'm told that some commercial operations actually do run Windows client machines as a way of providing a cheaper type of hosting, although that isn't obviously supported by FileMaker like Server, but apparently it works in a in a in a way that's cheaper. So I ran I I talked to various people to find where I could do this do a sort of a proper like-for-like testing because whenever I've had conversations about testing server capacity and performance, uh, particularly with Wim DeCourt, who 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 um, gave me a lot of help and support and stuff I was doing in 2015, and and we've we've had many interesting conversations about server measurement and so on. And he's he's recently released his his Punisher app, which I think is doing a similar thing and probably doing it far better than than DS Benchmark that we released five years ago. Um, but I wanted to do a like for like comparison, so I needed to have a way of having. Microsoft Server 2016 and Linux CentOS 7.8 set up on the same hardware with exactly the same um, technical specifications so I could compare one with the other. And in the end, I was able to do this with um, Fabrice Nordman at One More Thing. Um, They're based in, in France, but they've got server facilities in all parts of the world now, I understand. And they were happy to facilitate that type of testing. So we ended up doing the work in November and December, and I released the paper on Medium last night. And the conclusion is that if you use FileMaker Server 19.1 or 0.2 running on Microsoft Windows Server 2016 as the benchmark then that has a certain capacity. And on this particular hardware setup, it actually supported 100 virtual clients and it ran at a certain speed for different for different events. And you can that's defined in, in the report. We then set up, obviously we, um, one more thing, then set up a, a second virtual machine using exactly the same hardware. So they use the same hardware cloud thing that they're that they're renting or that they're, that they're using to then configure the same machine but for linux centos 7.8 we did exactly the same tests and we discovered that it supported slightly fewer clients it was about the average was 78 as opposed to 100 but the response time of the events being tested was about just over 20 percent faster so you it supported slightly fewer clients at a slightly faster response rate so it was broadly similar um but it was a little probably a little bit less powerful than than the same windows setup on the same specification hardware however the windows um instance was going to cost you twice as much in 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 round figure terms, about a hundred dollars or a hundred euros, it was going to cost you twice as much as the same instance using Linux because of the licensing costs. So if you then took the amount of money you were spending on the on the Microsoft Windows server and used the same amount of money to get a Linux server, you got basically twice as much, twice as many cores and and, and basically more more RAM. So we then did the same test a third time on this 
second machine, instead of it being the same spec as the Windows machine, it was the same cost as the Windows machine, but with Linux. And that was significantly faster than the Windows machine by about a third far. It was it supported about a third more users, and it was about a third faster as well. So it seemed on that basis that value for money-wise, that if you use Linux, because you weren't paying for Microsoft licensing in, in essence, if you reapplied what you would be paying Microsoft for licensing their software to getting more hardware for your solution, you were going to get a better deal, and it, it ran faster and supported more people. But then the one more thing, guys, said, well, look, there is another option, they said. What you can do is to run your Linux machine, not in a virtual machine. Now, a virtual machine means that you are virtualizing a computer. So it's got, it's specified, it's got a certain amount of cores, certain amount of storage, certain amount of RAM. That's your space. It's your unique space. No one else can use it. And you sit there in your virtual machine doing whatever you can do in that context. If you run Linux in a container, and this is a, a, a concept that originated, I think, on Linux, certainly in this form, although it has now been the versions apparently for, for Windows and for, OS, for Mac OS. If you run your machine in a container, using a system called Docker, then the underlying Docker software enables you to use the other resources of this big machine you're on, and it doesn't limit you to just using... It doesn't limit you to being in a virtual machine. You've essentially got 32 calls and 128 gig of RAM being shared between all of the clients on the machine. Obviously, your data and your setup and everything is completely sacrosanct and completely contained, but the resource required to process stuff is shared as part of a almost a community. And what I discovered was astounding. I discovered that using the essentially the lowest spec setup, which is the same as the Windows one and the same as the as the low spec Linux one. So this is the sort of in round figure terms, it's the sort of it's the $50 a month option. If you use that in a Docker configuration, instead of it being able to support 78 users on, on Linux or 100 users on Windows, it would support 300 users. Purely because you're able to use a ton more resource, assuming, I assume, that that resource isn't being used by anybody else. So if you had someone like me doing the same type of experimenting, same type of load testing on 10 or 15 other client setups on the same hardware, you probably wouldn't get the same response. But with the normal use of most computer systems, the actual level of activity of even many users is not actually that high, unless they're sitting there doing an awful lot of reporting and sorting, or unless they're you know, on a, on, a, on a supermarket cash machine ringing up things at a great rate. There's a lot of looking at stuff and things being changed, but they're not all doing things the whole time. And so working with milliseconds, a, a, a clever system is able to allocate resource dynamically. And so what it showed me is that on this first in-depth look, that the Linux option gives you an enormous opportunity to have your FileMaker stuff hosted effectively and fast at a very reasonable price. 
And there's a second element, though, as well. And again, I'm, I think that the sort of green economy, sustainability, this sort of stuff, save the planet, is actually very relevant these days. You know, we various parts of the world, in this country, we're suffering from floods. In in the California, are always having fires, and you know, all over the world, things are changing. So that probably most reasonably educated people now accept there is a bit of a climate thing going on. And in computing, to me, it seemed like a good idea to use things more sustainably. And the idea of this Docker configuration in Linux, where multiple users are essentially sharing the same resources, and because no one's husbanding a resource and not using it, uh, it's being used more efficiently, I think that's probably a good thing. But the second element on sustainability is I've got, I've got, I think, four Mac mini servers. I bought all of them in 2010 or 11. They're all that sort of model of things that they sold in those days. Those Mac mini servers of that age are perfectly functional, but they can't run. You can't install Mac uh, OS X beyond Sierra on them because they're too old, because they don't, it's not supported by Apple anymore. You can, however, install Linux on them happily. You can install um, uh, Linux CentOS 7.8, which is what Pharmac Server runs on, happily on any old Mac you want. I don't know how far back it goes, but it certainly works for the Mac Mini Server from 2010. And that old machine will now run every modern form of Pharmac Server for the next few years because it's got an up-to-date operating system on it. And there must be many schools, not-for-profits, small businesses around the world who've got old Macs that could no longer run an up-to-date version of Filemaker Server, which could now run an up-to-date version of Filemaker Server by merely installing Linux. Now, you have to overcome the fact that you have to learn to use a different operating system, which is a bit more command line heavy. But, you know, it's doable. And with, um, you know, young, bright people learning to do stuff, most youngsters would probably not take very long to work out how to do it. So I think that's a really exciting opportunity as well. How, how long would you say it took you to become comfortable with Linux? Not, you know, extremely proficient, but so you don't feel like you're just, you know, guessing and looking up in books on how to uh, do stuff. I, I probably spent a fairly intensive week or so on it back in August last year. I, I started off by trying to install it on the, on the Mac mini and that worked. And then I thought I'll do it a bit more difficult. So I found a, Little one U unit we used to use as a as a DNS server and firewall, and I, you know, it's just one of those boxes. So I looked at this box and said, "Well, that must be Linux." So I worked out how to get a screen onto it, and uh, then I installed Firefox on that little box. And then I thought, "Oh, well, maybe it's, it's it's not got much RAM or anything." So I put some more RAM in it, put a SSD in it, and it ran a lot faster. And then I wrote some. I looked up how to write essentially the equivalent of a shell script in Linux so I could sort of do an installation automatically rather than sitting there typing all these command lines in and that will work perfectly. So I suppose if you invested a week a week of quality time, it wouldn't take you that long to get hold of it because the, the community of people who tell you how to use Linux is vast. So the, there's nothing... Mm. But the, the one thing is whenever I have this sort of a bit of a dialogue online with Wim on this. He always says, you've got to do everything with a command line. You shouldn't use the UI. I'm not so sure that I'd completely agree. I'm sure that if you're a command line person, that is doubt undoubtedly the only way, but I quite like to see things. So I would certainly say for folk, 
you know, use use a, a one of the different um, visual UIs you can use on Linux to get used to things and work your way into the command line a bit as well. And you know, d- don't worry too much about exactly how you do it. Um, but it's it's there to be done, and it's it's a free operating system. It's extremely well refined. It's what runs most of the internet, to be honest. I mean. You know, I don't know how many um, data centers in the world are filled with machines that aren't running Linux to run websites and so on. So, um, yeah. So fascinating stuff, and, and it gives people another option. And probably not that difficult to learn Linux if you've got, you know, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 hours to put towards it. And it could make a big difference in, in uh, you know, if you need a really – performance enhanced server uh, not all I get I don't think every implementation of a solution needs uh, to have that performance because you probably wouldn't notice in all situations right I mean if you took a small little contact manager used by a couple of people you probably wouldn't notice the difference in speed on a Linux versus no, a, no, a Windows sure. you, box you right all, all you're looking for in most circumstances to be honest and until you until you hit some sort of um constraint people aren't concerned with the performance at all until it starts not performing they? They, they, they start off they they look at the cost of it and say well i want to have five ten or twenty users or whatever it is and i've got these people who want to work off their phones and their their tablets how am i going to do that what's it going to cost me and most people will probably say well you know i don't really want to spend a lot of money on that i just want it to work um so the starting point is that to get the same sort of technical spec on the experiments i've done it it seems that you get about twice as much for your money or it costs you half as much as as paying microsoft but of course you know microsoft is stuff that people have spent presumably gazillions of dollars developing and it's got great strength and you know you can you know exactly where you are with it and the question is is a free operating system get a cut the mustard but of course the fact that that free operating system with apache is is running i don't know probably 90% of the websites you ever look at you know the most of the internet is powered by linux because who who in their right mind would pay a licensing fee for an operating system when there's a very good operating system that's community maintained and built for free well said uh, i'd like to i've got two more things i wanted to talk about um, the first is you've worked a lot with optimizing databases that are, you know, storing image or knowledge base. And I'm, I'm interested in, in finding out from you uh, some of the work you've done and, and some of the things you've discovered that can really make serving up images more efficient. Yeah. Um, there's a, been a recent um, dialogue on one of the FileMaker lists quite recently where people have been discussing the the apparent planned deprecation by Claris of the um, uh, uh, refer to uh, uh, image by reference. Um, so when FileMaker handles images, traditionally you put the image in a container field. A container field is a, is a very wonderful thing in FileMaker that you can put anything you want into it. I mean, I don't know if if people do it these days, but when I was starting with FileMaker, I discovered you, if you double-clicked in a, in, a, in a container field, it could actually record a message for you. It, it did amazing things. But 
the flip side is you put large amounts of data into container fields, it it tends to make FileMaker slow because it's a lot of stuff for it to carry around. You know, you just want to display a um, a, a list or, or something like that, and you've got loads of images in there. It it's it didn't used to be very efficient. Now, FileMaker has become much better of late. I'm not sure which iteration it was, but it's become much more efficient at dynamically um, creating thumbnail images from images in container fields in order to display them in the interface. So a modern version will be much better at displaying a load of images for you to scroll through a list and pick the picture you want to look at and stuff like that than it would have been in the past. But you're still putting images into container fields. So a preferred way of doing it theoretically is not to have the image in the container field at all, but to contain in the container field a reference to where the image is. So if you say you have a you have your 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 file, your app you make, and you have a folder of images, in theory you can import all those images into FileMaker and the images are neither moved nor copied. It's just that FileMaker holds references to where they actually are. And that to me is the best way of doing it. The problem is that when you do it by that method, if you ignore the fact that maybe, maybe not, it'll be deprecated in the future, so it may not work in the future. But when you do it by that method, you run into considerable, or I ran into considerable difficulties along, I think, with quite a few other people, with the evaluation of the path where the image is. So that what I found was I could put this stuff into my system, and then I looked at the system from another device and I couldn't display the image. And although I had, I remembered in the past, I had worked out how to, um, what expression to use to work out what the path should be from somewhere else. It's it's really hard to do. So because time is valuable and, you know, I want to do lots of stuff before I get too old to do it anymore, I thought, well, I'm just going to stick with the container field option and I'm going to put this stuff into container fields, but I'm going to try and do it efficiently. So... The problem I was trying to solve, the problem I thought that a lot of people want to solve right now is that on their computers, they've got a gazillion different images in different systems. They've probably got stuff in folders from a long time ago. They've probably got stuff um, that's in um, iPhoto. They may have stuff in, in one of the um, Adobe systems. They may have stuff in, um, I used to use Aperture for about, Eight or nine years, so they got deprecated. You then got stuff in the photo, which is a sort of a coming together of the iOS and the the macOS method, and you've got a similar deal on on Windows, I'm sure. So you've got photos all over the place, and if you've been a religious backer up of things, you've probably got multiple copies of everything everywhere. But trying to find anything can be a real pain if you've got a lot of it, and of course. Some people do have all their stuff on an online system, but, you know, will those online systems be there forever? What if they disappear? You know, you, you can't really know. If you want to hold on to your stuff, you do need to have the photographs somewhere under your direct control, I would have said. So how do you do it? Well, first of all, you have to extract all the photos. So you use a command line to do that. So you, you use a command line thing called rsync, which is able to happily go iteratively through any level of folders you want and extract all the photographs you ask it to um, extract. And I'm, I've 
I've got a fairly long rsync command I've worked out that does the right job, which I'm happy to share with anyone who wants to use it. So that gives you a ton of photographs with a ton of duplication. So if you look at the if you look at the screenshot I sent you a bit earlier, on the on the left, the images archive, you've got the 91 gigabyte images app, which has got these things have been imported into it. The next bit across, you've got sources where you've got um, you've got 213,000 odd items comprising 455 gigabytes. And that was all of the images pulled off my computer by rsync. The next two folders are then one's called reference, one's called display. And they both got almost the same number of images in them. Uh, just under uh, about 169,000, but one is a lot smaller than the other. One is 366 gig and the other is 88 gigs. So what we've done with the app is we've imported all of the images from the source and we've used the um, the, the metadata for the creation data images to then um, to then give the image... Um, essentially a name which which uses the creation date. The, the, the purpose of all of this is to put these images into containers and then export them out again using FileMaker to do the export, sending out images in two different sizes. The, the original full-size image, which is your reference one, and a somewhat smaller one, which is something you can actually use online when you don't need the full size. So you end up with two parallel systems, one of which you're going to use online, the other of which is where it sits on your backup disk where you can always find the things in the same folder structure with the same name. And the the, the way that everybody does this is if you export your images into a set of folders, which are year, month, day, then any images with the same name, i.e. duplicate images, will overwrite each other. And hence, you end up by getting rid of duplicates automatically. And so the difference on that screenshot I sent you between the sources with um, 203,000 items and the reference catalogue with with 169,000, the difference is duplicates have been automatically removed by merely writing things with the same name to the same place so you only end up with one copy of them and when you've done all of that which is quite a long process you then empty the app of all its all its images and you then re-import just the display catalog file so you've then got something which with the in this case i've set it at, i think one one six one six 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 pixels um, wide or high gives you something big enough to use in all circumstances other than one you want to go back to the original. And what I found is that surprisingly enough, I can have a system sitting on a server in um, well, one of these Linux servers in France. And the tests I've done so far, I had about 27,000 images on that server. And I could look at it on my phone sitting in Cambridge and just scroll up and down the portal of images, um, filter them, look at them, tap on them, send them to people by WhatsApp or whatever, very quickly and easily. The, there was virtually no delay at all in displaying images on my phone. And that's what I wanted to get to, as I wanted to get to a point where I or someone in my family could scroll through 
thousands of images on their phone, finds the one they want to do something with and use it. So the answer is that incorporating images in a FileMaker app using by reference is by far the best way of doing it if you are clever enough to actually make it work for all the different devices you want to connect to it. But And I'm sure somebody out there is much cleverer than I am to do that. I couldn't work out how to do it, and I gave up and thought, I'll do it the easy way. But I was then surprised at how efficiently FileMaker handles these days images in that scenario. So literally looking at a phone with a portal is it a portal or is it a list? Hang on a second. I beg your pardon. It's actually a list, not a portal. Looking at a list of images, which is in fact 27,000 images long, scrolling up and down the phone as if it was local and it's actually on a server in France over a cellular network. So that I think is impressive. And that's down to the fact, A, that FileMaker has got better at doing these things. They've, you know, all of these things, they keep on trying to iteratively improve. And secondly, I think that the processors in your iPhone, as you're now seeing with the processors on the on the, the M1 chip for, for Macs, are really quite efficient at dealing with images. So, you know, your phone is doing a lot more legwork and FileMaker is, I guess, is, is you know, tapping into those, those resources quite effectively. Interesting. Rather than using external storage, which is what I, I, I used to use references all the time because I didn't want to put all those files into the all those you know stuff into the Canadian fields right in the FileMaker file. So I do references and there's of course all those problems. So when external storage came along, like I got on the bandwagon and said, hey, let's make my life easy. But if you really need efficiency, like you're talking about, the reference could be the way to go for some people. If what what I think FileMaker should do, what Claris should do, I think, is to actually make the um, the reference thing work a lot better. Rather than talking about deprecating it, they should make it work so it's easy to use. Or if they think they can deprecate it because there's a better way of doing it, then let's hear what that is. Because it seems to me, FileMaker has always been, has been quite widely used. Handling images is a difficult thing. You cannot go and buy off-the-shelf systems to handle images effectively. There are many FileMaker developers around the world who have created really good businesses by creating FileMaker solutions for people who need to handle images in various specialist ways, whether they're you know, in the design world, whether they're handling antiques, well, it doesn't really matter. But images, you know, real realtors, estate agents, people like that, handling images the way you want to handle them. FileMaker is a really great way of doing that because you can make it do what you want. But it would be far, far better if you could handle images by importing them using references, which would then work automatically on any device you want to look at it with without having to jump through. You know, I, I if occasionally I can't work out how to do something in FileMaker, there's one or two people I ring up, and one of them is, is Alan Sterling in London, who's a terribly clever guy who's been doing FileMaker since, you know, since, since well, he... I'm sure you know Alan fairly well. And he, I think he was at the very first FileMaker conference on the Monterey Peninsula. I think he went back that far with it. And if I have a problem that he can't answer, which is very rare, but this particular um, image reference thing was one, 
I think, well, I'm just not going to bother, to be honest. I, you know, life's too short. I've got to find another way of doing it. Let's go around this obstacle. But if FileMaker made it work efficiently with references, I think that would open up a really amazing market, purely because, as I said, people dealing with images in businesses want to be able to handle images the way they want, and you can't get um, you know, off-the-shelf applications to do that. You have to have something built for you. And FileMaker is the perfect platform if it did this well. So this has been a fascinating conversation and in your wealth of knowledge and, and we'll probably have you on again, but I want to stop and end up on one last thing I wanted to talk about, uh, which I, I didn't realize I was, I was uh, using some of your information, not plagiarizing. I, I do a lot of research when I write articles. And so I wrote an article maybe six or seven months ago called Why FileMaker? And one of the things that came along when I was doing research was your article. So why do people use FileMaker? And I thought it was so interesting. I remembered it specifically because a lot of what it was was quotes from developers who have been using FileMaker for a long time. And through those quotes and, and some other text you wrote, you had, you had written this this article that said why you should you use FileMaker, but it was it was really mostly quotes, and I found found it so interesting and remembered it, and then I realized, oh, I'm interviewing you today. So, um, I'm just curious about that article and in 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 kind of rounding out this whole conversation and and how you came about with that article and anything you really wanted to say about it. Yeah, well, that 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 came out of one of the um, one of the internal sort of FileMaker community sort of um, uh, forum type things. Um, I mean, I, I've, I've found the, fi the FileMaker developer community, as I said, enormously valuable. And the, the scenarios where you end up talking to a relatively modest group of people who are all fairly expert in their own way, you know, you learn a lot. You, you, um, you put your reputation on the line every time you say anything because people will call you out very quickly if they think you're wrong and, and you learn a lot by being rigorous. And um, many years ago, uh, probably at least 15 years ago, in one of those um, forums of fairly expert people, I'd actually started a conversation about what the various, and in those days it was probably 100 or 150 people maximum or one of these lists, I started a conversation about what people had done before they came to FileMaker, and I, you know, and the, the thing I discovered was that most of the people on that list had done something else. I.e., they weren't computer science graduates. They'd done something else before they'd done FileMaker. They'd been in all sorts of different areas. And the thing I particularly remembered was Rick Kalman, who was not as senior then as he is now, but he was a, you know, a, a, a crucial link between. FileMaker Inc., as it then was, and the developer community, the Rick had said he'd been a marriage guidance counsellor before he'd um, got into uh, working for Claris and FileMaker. And I just thought in one of those uh, community dialogues um, in 2016, probably, I thought, oh, I thought, why don't we do this again? But let's let's do it a bit better. So I think at that stage, the... Um, the particular method that FileMaker were using for these chat groups was a system called Jive. And they included a sort of a, a poll option in it. So I basically ran a poll within that list to get people to say how long they've been using FileMaker and 
and why they used it. And the results of that poll I used in that piece. And it, it's it actually, it was quite, it, well, I got some very complimentary comments from the Wedge about it. And I think on Medium, it's had about 21,000 reads or so. Um, it, it, I mean, it's still being read, you know, 20 or 30 or 50 people a week read it. So it's it's still in circulation. And it's interesting because it's about real people. It's not me, you know, giving my opinion on stuff. It's just people saying why they did stuff. So, and it, it does for me, it, well, it reiterated for me what I'd discovered when I'd done this other um, question amongst uh, fellow developers many years before, that the vast majority of people come to FileMaker having come from something else. Now, that means they're not coming to FileMaker as a computer science graduate. They haven't studied FileMaker at university or anything like that. They've used FileMaker initially to find a solution to their own problem and then have found the accessibility, the ability to start making stuff so exciting, so stimulating, that they've ended up doing it more and more and end up becoming part-time or full-time developers. And that's, I think, one of the... I don't know that it's unique, but I think it's an unusual aspect of our community because it's quite different, I'm sure, to communities filled with people who are working in other areas of software who've, you know, come to it through some sort of um, uh, university or, 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 or technical training program. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more about uh, where people come from. I mean, I'm my degree is in cultural anthropology. I just <laughs> liked computers and I liked Claris and went to work for them. And that's when I discovered FileMaker. And I'm like, wow, this thing is great. And, and you know, 25 years later, I'm still working with it because it's it's truly a, a, a wonderful product. Nothing else can do what it does. Um, it's It's just... I can't talk enough about it. I, I mean, I can do things I would never be able to do with a lot of other platforms without a lot more uh, extensive training and, and investment of time. So, yeah, so I'm glad you wrote this article because it inspired me in a lot of ways and what I did with my article. Um, and and I just thought it was so brilliant. So I wanted to end up with talking about that. So the article's called, So, comma, Why Do People Use FileMaker? And if you Google that, you even if you just Google why FileMaker, you should be able to find that article. I think it's a good read, and, and people should go out and check it out. Uh, one of the lighter things to read from our conversations here, but it, it's always inspiring, I think, to, to have that kind of, you know, all these quotes from all these developers with 30-plus years of experience saying, this is why I use it. It's, it's, it's really a, a great article. So thanks for writing that and taking the time. Yeah, cool. No, that's, I'm, I'm glad, glad, glad you liked it. It's... Um... You know, when you when you put yourself out there and write stuff and publish it, um, you know, you, you're always thinking, I don't know, am I going to do this? You know, are people going to, you know, not accept it or, or, or be nasty to me because they disagree? But I found that, um, I mean, I, I don't write stuff too often, but if I feel there's something I can say that makes complete sense to me, then I try and share it because I think that, as I said before several times, I think most of what I've learned has been through dialogue within the community. I mean, I've done, other than the Ray Culligan thing, I don't think I've ever done any training in FileMaker at all. I've always just worked it out. There were a few books, of course. There was your scriptology book um, uh, many years ago, and there was a um, Ray Culligan 
spent about a year, I think, rewriting something like the Farmaker Bible or something a few, probably about 15 or 18 years ago. And which I think he said he'd never do again, such a lot of work and so little, little remuneration. But, you know, the way to learn about FileMaker is to is to use it and to be active in the online community and ask questions. But 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 don't don't abuse the privilege by asking stupid questions. You know, respect other people's time and effort and compose your questions carefully. I think that's the thing. Really, is is. Uh, you 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 only have to ask a, a foolish question or someone like Bruce Robertson, and you'll you'll so, soon be put in your place. But if you've got the um, if you spend the time, if you invest the time in in formulating what it is you actually want to know and express that sensibly, then you'll find it's a fantastic community for people who will take their own valuable time to help you with whatever it is you're doing, and it's a, it's a it's a very wonderful thing. Yep, and a great way to, to end this conversation. So we'll be uh, hoping to talk to you soon uh, about other subjects because there's actually quite a few things we had to skip over because we're at a couple hours now. But we want to thank you again for coming on the show and, and spending your time here. Uh, again, it's uh, Nick Lightbody. Uh, can you tell us uh, just at the end here uh, your company website and kind of the things that you guys do and where you're located and where your customers usually come from or the worldwide things like that just to give you a little bit of plug for sharing your time here well, well, well first of all thanks very much for, for inviting me it's been a real pleasure and i mean i've i've always had uh, enormous respect for what you've done over over the years john and uh, it's really really interesting to have the conversation with you and and great to catch up with 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 michael again um we're based in, in in Cambridge in the UK. We used to build systems for people and did all sorts of things. But the last few years, I've focused more on trying to develop uh, methods of doing things better. And so I tend to do consultancy for people. So people come and say, look, we've got a problem with this system, a performance problem of some sort generally. And then... Um, I try and help them out with it, but rather than actually doing the work ourselves, what I normally do is treat it as an educational thing where I um, do take a look at what they're doing and then do a few online sessions with them to discuss how they can solve the problem. So I, I try to avoid spending my time clicking mice and tapping keyboards directly for people. I'd rather talk them through what they're doing and help them to shape their thinking so that they can work out how to do things better for themselves. And if somebody wanted to try to take advantage of that service, where would they go? What would be the best way to? If you, if you come to deskspace.com, so deskspace.com is, is my original website. It's been there since 1999 and um, you can always contact me at nick.lightbody at deskspace.com or go to deskspace.com and go at whatever the link is info at or whatever it is, and I'll come back to you. Um, I'm also, I do use WhatsApp as a, as a, as a chat medium because it's, it's easy to use and it works well. And if anyone wants to discuss stuff with me, then I look at emails several times a week. Um, I look at WhatsApp 
more frequently. So finding me on WhatsApp is, is another way of doing it. But just get in contact. I'm, I'm always happy to get back to you. And um, every time I help someone with a problem, I learn more. And, you know, that's the way I do things. Uh, it's, that's great that you said that because I say that all the time. You help somebody, you teach somebody, you're going to learn something yourself. And, and so some people are so closed with giving their information away, they don't realize what they're missing out on. And so I'm glad you said that. And that's really the, that's the period on this whole conversation, I think, right there. You know, really understand that, help people out, and you'll learn more yourself. And that, that's really why, um, having spent a lot of time and work building what I then released as DS Benchmark, you know, I decided to give it away. I thought, well, yeah, I can sell it to people. I thought, no, I'll just give it away because I wanted it to be multilingual and I didn't want to, I couldn't really pay half a dozen different people to translate all this stuff. It was going to be far too expensive. So I thought, I'll give it away. Um, people were very kind then to, um, and they're all credited on the app. They're very kind and they did the, you know, the, the translations into um, I don't know, French and German and Swedish and Chinese and Russian or whatever it was. And um, and I gained by helping people out like that. And But what I do think is worth considering is this, that within the FileMaker community, performance is actually the most under um, under-discussed element online, wherever. And I think what could be done would be to consider creating some sort of um, FileMaker performance course or teaching forum or something like that. I think it's the area that, you see, most of the complaints people have about FileMaker are normally about performance, and yet it is paradoxical that it is, it is the least formally studied part of the whole thing. So I think yep. that's something I'd, I'd be up for if, if somebody had some interesting ideas on it. Yeah, well, maybe you are the man to do that. And what we're going to do here is is uh, say goodbye to everybody and and uh, you know thank them for listening. Uh, it's a long podcast, but well worth the time. Uh, please make comments uh, down in the comment section. We appreciate those. It helps us to understand what we're doing well and what we're doing badly. Uh, so here, my name is John Mark Osborne. This is Fireside FileMaker, and thanks again to Nick Lightbody for spending the day with us. Cheers. Thanks very much, James. Okay, Michael, are you there? You're going to... I'm Michael Richard, and this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. For our listeners who wondered why I haven't had much to contribute to this, it's because my recording or mic failed halfway through the process. So I've been listening intently. And I think you will find it as interesting as we did having this discussion with Nick. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to Fireside FileMaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Richard. We'd love to hear what you think. So please email us at info at firesidefilemaker.com. That's info at firesidefilemaker.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.